we start with the statement made by Jayant that what is time really is very, very difficult questions. And you know, the famous physicist John Wheeler, he started talking about arrow of time. He first told, before discussing arrow of time, let us try to understand what is time itself. And he made an interesting statement saying that nature is such that it don't like to things put together. So we need a concept which says that things are apart in the universe itself. Otherwise, all things come together. If it prevents is, things from all happening at the same time. Same time. Wow. <laughs> so nature is just being lazy. Just yeah. wants to make sure it spread the work out. Okay, it's so. nature is doing that way. We don't know how right. further we can go on. And uh, in fact, there is a conference in Slovenia. It's a NATO advanced study school. More than 200 people are there and they are discussing on the nature of time. And as uh, my friend from computer science, he was telling that the digital time or, you know, continuum time. Right. In physics, we have a debate that uh, there is a scale in physics called Planck scale. Planck scale, of course. Yes. 10 power minus 43 second, Planck scale. Yeah. So, there are two. One is length scale, another is time scale. Yeah. 10 to the power 33 minus 33 centimeter or 10 to the power minus 43, 43 seconds. Second. So both space and time, they are discrete. And, and it doesn't get smaller than that? No, it doesn't get smaller than that. Is that uncontroversial, Jayant? Uh, no, I think I would agree with what he says, that the shortest kind of unit of time is the Planck time that he described. It doesn't, of course, rule out anything smaller, but we don't know any physics at the moment, which gives a smaller time scale. Right, so the smallest of particles can be... No, smallest uh, unit. Of time, sure. Uh, and this is determined by fundamental constant, like Planck constant, yes. speed of light, or gravitational constant. Right. And it raises immediately a lot of epistemological issues. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what is beyond that Planck scale? Is there any concept of space? Is there any concept of time? Is there any concept of causality beyond that? And our practical issue is that we are all working in physics and any other science with continuous time. So how, starting from a discrete time or digital time, you can build up a continuum? Right. And that's very, very difficult issue. Kriti, is there a parallel to this Planck's time? Obviously, Planck's time is Planck's time. It will be the same in different systems, whether they're cyber-physical or whatever, but how does this resonate with how you think about computers? So, like I said, each computer has a word length. Yes. That word length determines the analog of the Planck's constant for that computer. Correct. So if you have 32 bits, you can represent in different ways of storing uh, decimal parts of the uh, the number, for example. Um, so if you, if you allocate a certain number of digits for the fraction part, or if you allocate more, you get a different accuracy Correct. in the corresponding computer. So in a sense, there is an analog of that in the computer world, uh, but there's no limit as such. I mean, if you want to add more and more decimal places to your number, you can add bits to it, making it larger and larger. Yeah, I, if I may interrupt. Please. See, I would like to express my view on this Planck time and overall what is the shortest time yes. unit. Astronomers know of pulsar yeah. giving a very stable time, which is slightly more accurate than the nuclear time scale. Oh, is, is that yeah, so? Yeah, it has been shown that if you observe a pulsar for a long enough time, it will produce a 
stable. And what's that periodicity, Jayanth? I think it is 10 to the power minus 14 or something. Yeah, of yeah, that. Sure, sure. Similar to that. Yeah. That's beautiful. So now, 14 seconds. So now my objection to Planck time being included in the same thing is there is no operational way I can measure Planck time. Right. Because quantum gravity, the Sishir mentioned that QFT you, you have to use G, yeah. H cross and C, these Correct. three constants. The theoretical basis is fine. But if you want me to devise no an experiment, uh, measurement of that, I can't. So I don't feel very happy with including Planck time as something which is well established in practical terms. Let me add but, yeah, one, one more thing about digital time. It or sounds like you're about to make it more confusing. You know, even in our perception in brain, yeah. there is a time called quantized time. Okay. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think they're so fascinating because compared to a lot of other organisms, they generally have rather short lifespans on the order mm-hmm. of days and weeks for many organisms. Mm-hmm. And they also have an incredible energy expenditure in that the majority of insects actually fly. And mm-hmm. flight is, as, as you would know, is a tremendous energy constraint. Mm-hmm. So, and so obviously they can't fly around forever and they don't live forever. So they, essentially they have to, as soon as they're born, or as soon as they emerge from the pupil case, as it may be, mm-hmm. they have to immediately be able to find either nutrients or a mate or, you know, those two particularly. Sure. And then at least if you're a female, then you have to... F- find a good place for your babies to grow up. So you have to lay your eggs in an appropriate location. Yeah. So being born in the sense or being have uh, an innate recognition of certain things in your environment, such as food sources, mates, and egg laying sites can be very advantageous if you have a very short lifespan. And the other thing is, is they a lot of insects the exception of being things like bees and ants and others, are not social, right? So they also don't have anyone to teach them, What the, unlike us, right, who are taught. So there's no notion of parenting there? <sighs> no, I mean, uh, if you think about a, a butterfly, for example, right, mm-hmm. she lays her eggs on a plant, mm-hmm. and those eggs hatch and the larvae come out, and the lar- there's, no, there's no adult around. Mm. And they are equally the same age, so they're not able to teach each other, right? <laughs> so, so, and as far as we know, there is, of course, there is some group interaction, of course. Um, in all organisms, there is interactions. But, but in the sense that they can't, of course, teach each other the importance of things because they're equally ignorant of their world or that's knowledgeable of their world. So, so that's another thing. And that brings probably the fourth reason to identify things, which is communication, right? Uh-huh. You, of course, have to be able to recognize and identify things if you have to describe them to someone else. Is there a way of saying something in the case of chemical reactions? What yeah, makes what, chemical, what's the slowest chemical reaction? The slowest reaction, if you ask any chemist, they will think of chemical reaction, which is uh, in the absence of enzyme catalysis. Like say any kind of a uh, the breaking out of glucose in our body into CO and H2O or lactose. This is done by one enzyme called galactosidase, which is done in some millisecond time scale. If you do not have that enzyme, then this will happen a trillion times slower. You know, it's a 10 to the power, 10 orders of magnitude slower. So whenever you think of a slow reaction, we think of a chemical reaction. Which so here you, the enzyme is a catalyst of sorts. Uh, so if we remove the enzyme, then we get the slowest of the biochemical reactions. Mm-hmm. This is a very important thing that now we are beginning to figure out how 
enzyme does it. So very interesting uh, physics and chemistry goes on how an enzyme used its charges to weaken a bond and then break the bond with the help of water molecules most of the time. Right. It's a beautiful kind of things that have gone on. So absent this enzyme, this would be the slowest reaction? One of the slowest reactions. All these biochemical reactions mm-hmm. are, you know, then kinase, like uh, our water, uh, the energy, uh, we are talking, the energy is given by energy molecule. And ATP, adenine triphosphate, has to combine with the uh, monophosphate to get two diphosphate, two ATP. Right. That reaction is the energy reaction. And that is an exceedingly slow, which will probably, you put an ATP and the AMP together, it will trillion years, it will not do. Is that an equivalent of these enzymes and catalysts that can make physical processes go slower or faster? Yes, just a very concrete example. You can make a glass not only of spheres, but of spheres that have different sizes. Right. Uh, They are given a distribution of sizes. Mm -hmm. And then you put this in the computer, you simulate it, and you make them move, and it's extremely slow. But in the computer, you can choose to allow every now and then not only the motion of each particle, but swapping particles, a big one and a small one that are far away from one another. If you allow for swaps, then the dynamics can get 10 orders of magnitude faster. So what was a glass has become just an ordinary liquid. Just by virtue of allowing a motion, this is like a, a catalyst played at all the levels. When you say glass, do you necessarily mean homogeneous systems? Yes. Well, uh, it's easier if we restrict to homogeneous systems. But here the system is statistically homogeneous. You have big and small with a distribution, for example, four sizes, five sizes of particles which are well mixed. And now one possibility is to allow them to move normally or another possibility is in the computer every now and then decide to a big one with a small one. If you allow the swaps, which is a bit like catalyzing, then the thing can become incredibly faster. How about making it slower? Ah, I know glass is slow enough. No, I invented a glassifier, which is now imagine a glass made of ellipsoids. (laughs) Instead of of spheres. Instead of spheres. Yeah. And they will produce a glass like just everything else. Now, do the same, but allow the ellipsoids to move, but not to rotate. Mm. You could even imagine an experiment. Well, if you do this, the only way of changing the angle is replacing mine by another ellipse that is coming from far away and has the appropriate angle. And this is the exact opposite effect. But just to slow it down. Slow it down dramatically. You made this point about laminar becoming turbulent and turbulent becoming laminar. How exactly does that happen? What is it a result of? Which is, I mean, another way of saying what exactly makes systems chaotic. Why are systems, some systems chaotic and some not? I think we have a grip on what chaotic systems are. Okay. But what makes systems chaotic? Okay, so this is actually a very interesting question, especially in the fluid dynamical context. Mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, there are these several very well-known routes to chaos. So how a periodic system becomes chaotic. So it becomes less and less and less orderly in some sense until it becomes completely aperiodic. So one of the ways to chaos is that the period becomes longer and longer and then it becomes completely aperiodic. In uh, fluid flows, the interesting thing is that there are laminar states which are fairly easy to calculate. Mm -hmm. There are turbulent states which are not easy to calculate but they are all similar to each other. Mm -hmm. But the route 
from lamina to turbulent can be vastly different. And this depends on what each flow is sensing and what it's going through. So I'd like to first emphasize that it's exactly the same equations, Newton's laws, namely the Navier-Stokes equations, which are giving you both the lamina solution and, and the, the turbulent solution. So in many of these flows, the flow could choose to be laminar, it could choose to uh, obey this solution of Navier-Stokes, or it could choose to obey that solution of Navier-Stokes. And, so, and it could choose several solutions in between which are transitioning between laminar and turbulent and uh, so each of these solutions has what is called a basin of attraction mm -hmm. so depending on my initial conditions i can fall into one trap or the other trap or i could fall into yet another trap so but can you say priori that this is this is this has a larger basin of attraction to become turbulent or larger ba basin yeah, of attraction so what, to become laminar what typically happens is when the reynolds number that means the inertia right. becomes larger and larger and larger the basin of attraction of the laminar flow shrinks and shrinks and the basin of attraction of turbulent flow grows and grows so there's always an infinitesimal basin of attraction for the laminar state since and it's again, still are you a solution and again i think of this a model this in probability terms uh it's i mean in terms of the sizes of the basins of attraction you can pull out a probability but if you knew the initial conditions exactly you should know on which side of the uh, of the separatrix you are between the two basins of attraction yeah. so if you're a give on a given side of the separatrix you will fall into turbulence ultimately your route may be entirely different but you'll fall into a similar state so the route depends on geometry it depends on uh, you know uh, situations like what's the salinity gradient what's the temperature gradient the route depends on a whole variety of things however a possible answer a clue comes from looking at time and not space yeah because it is very clear if you look at it very rigorously yeah. there is no way to define time without matter yeah. space is a little bit more tricky is what i feel but time unless there is a change of a matter configuration there is no way to talk about time so at least for time we know matter is essentially primary and time is derived is this a common place understanding no, in the community no it is not it is not most of theoretical physics today assumes that space and time are a priori Yeah, matter is relatively unimportant. Yeah, except when you introduce matter into this a priori space and time, which is assumed to be isotropic, homogeneous, and so on. Because yeah. if there is no matter, space has to be everywhere has to be similar. Has I mean, to be at least same. there is no reason for it to be as different. As Leibniz says, you know, there is sufficient. There is no sufficient reason to say that it is different. Otherwise, when there is matter, things become very different because if matter is going to influence space and time. then of course it need not remain isotropic where there is matter that's what goes into einstein's theory of gravity the general theory of relativity primarily says things like this matter can affect space so what is a priori for you i reject uh, this view and for me especially because of this example with time matter is primary and space is only a relational quantity as far as i'm concerned and once you say this gravity becomes important very Because interesting matter, what happens at the big bang we'll go to gravity what happens at the no, big bang there's no, no space you're asking me the most difficult question right in the middle of <laughs> this uh, discussion so here we are going to talk about origin right origin of what we know yeah. about uh, the cosmos even these concepts and so on 
there is no real agreed answer in standard physics for such questions but what you say is very interesting because there is no space before the big bang because you reject space being a prior eye that's right it starts with some matter and then you know things take yeah, over yeah i don't know what to start uh, with it's very it's in some sense together uh, one may say but you know i think that we are trying to address a very difficult question which cannot be I mean, clearly we can't uh, sort it out just now so just uh, no, or any time i think it will uh, people will continue to discuss those sure, questions so why don't we go to gravity uh, yeah gravity. so gravity once you say matter is uh, important at least as important as these concepts yeah. which is not the standard view since matter is the source of gravity yeah that becomes a primary quantity in the considerations of all of physics so it is true that present day theoretical physics theoretical physics is an attempt to formulate what we see what we perceive in terms of principles and laws and so on all fundamental theories of theoretical physics were completed by about 1930 by which time we had no idea of how much matter is there in the universe okay? yeah because cosmology came later all our fundamental theories therefore are constructed explicitly in empty isotropic space yeah that's very they leave out the matter in the universe and its gravity completely and then the question arises suppose all this gravity has some effect on motion here certainly we have left it out in our theories we have missed incorporating those so this is why i am completely skeptical of present day physical theories and i think they need a reformulation in terms of matter as primary its gravity as primary because if you actually calculate approximately the gravity of all the matter in the universe it far exceeds the gravity of anything which is locally created any local matter as an effect on any given point is right excessive. and uh, you know just to say it slightly more uh, not technically but as a interesting coincidence which people knew for a long time gravitational potential you can calculate the newtonian gravitational potential approximately and you get a number with a unit and that is numerically equal to the square of the velocity of light and we know that fundamental theories of physics put a lot of emphasis on the square of the or velocity of light or square of the velocity of light as a quantity you see this coincidence and you can immediately say that maybe we made a mistake but light has nothing to do with it it's a gravity of the universe which decides all these mathematical expressions so this is a kind of thing i'm i'm actually it's, working it's on very these days because only. i'm it's convinced that this should be the new conception of space and time may the force be with you oh me. thank you <laughs> <laughs> and it's gravity <laughs> but the heart would beat you even if i don't move right yes but the, there's still a movement inside the body it's still a movement i i would agree with that our ermgard my teacher took us uh, to the hospital sometimes and there would be patients uh, who would be on dialysis but she would say look at how they're breathing mm, exactly. and she would move in there with the breath yes yeah as a place mm. to start mm. and of course then there's that relationship to gravity you know as i was just saying moving up and down and so are the internal movements rhythmic almost always so I mean, uh, I mean of uh, course one you know one knows a thing or two about things like heartbeats which is just presumably rhythmic but i mean it has a it, they all have different uh, rhythms mm-hmm. different frequencies uh, but they're all uh, supposed to move at a particular frequency and when you say they what do you mean me- meaning all the internal organs um, like the blood would move at a certain pace 
the nerves move at a certain pace the fascia would move at a certain pace hmm. so they all have their own rhythms what is what is fascia fascia is um, well uh, in layman's term if i talk about the spider man right <laughs> the spider man has all this webs all over that's hmm. the easiest way to understand there's a fascia in every part of our body hmm. and which of which not too much is known uh, till recently uh they could be a cause of pain discomfort um pay, uh, you know any any problem uh, and which uh, and we've always focused on muscles and bones and nerves and blood and, vessels and fascias across the body it's not uh, it's everywhere in the body so it's, it's some kind of connecting tissue absolutely or? it's a connective tissue so if I, my fascia is injured at uh, in the leg i could still get a headache and so how does one injure the fascia is, is it just under the skin or where is it um it's it's a little deeper than that mm-hmm. and uh, when you put your hands on the body of a person there are many ways in which we mobilize that fascia mm-hmm. to heal a person mm-hmm. um and uh, when we put our hands on the body we can feel the fascia moving even if my uh, hands are static on the body i can and i'm quiet my touch is very very light i can feel and there's a movement that i can feel and mm-hmm. when i release that fascia the patient feels much better how deep is it does it uh, um, it's not very deep it's not as deep as the bones it's it's under the um, deeper part of the skin right that's so interesting and so it's some kind of a global organ it's yes. it's, it's a little bit like the skin it's it's all yeah, over yeah it's all over yes so yeah. in that very sense liquid, it's not really yes. a part yes. in that Pardon? sense it's not really a part i mean it's not like it's in one part of the body it's it's kind of all over it's a global organ yes absolutely That's, are there other organs of that sort uh all uh, not really i think uh, what we call uh, they they are attached to different parts of the body like they could be attached to the bones they could be attached to the muscles they could be attached to your digestive system but it's one organ on the yeah. whole because yeah. unlike the bone for example it's not like we have one bone we have like 206 bones or something absolutely. like that absolutely so this we have is one fascia yeah one fascia and that is why it's very mm. interesting so as i said if i uh, move my hands uh, on on i can release a fascia uh, in a certain way or if i don't move my hands on a certain part of the body with a very very light touch i can actually feel my hands moving involuntarily releasing that fascia and there could be knots and knots of those fascia which get released let me ask you this that is do you think uh, things have a social life amongst themselves No, no, I could never say that because for me, the social is entirely human. Mm. Yeah, I mean, they have a social life in so far as they are part of a world, a strangely natural world, I would say, and that's sort of controversial. That natural wor- world for humans mm-hmm. that we call society, and uh, when there are a set of things, let's say in a cupboard or on a desk, I mean, there's a set of things, set of things here, on the table here. Uh, in front of us. There's a table and plants and some bottles of water and what have you. and some objects of ours mm-hmm. these things one might say they're certainly in, in interrelation they're in spatial interrelation first of all they may be decoration meaning but there's some and so formations and some interrelationships that you, seem you, better to us but you can talk about them having a social life in themselves amongst themselves what about the ideas like what bruno latour puts across about things in terms of you know representation for 
things or parliament of things or whatever do they well you know this this is i mean latour this thing of freeing things just the ways of freedom it's a, it's a notion and it could be highly speculative it could just be baloney but it, it's a tendency it's not that recent actually although it's recently has gained a lot of uh, it's not recent uh, no because i would say uh, my god I, I, the th- first thing that comes to mind is thinkers of the frankfurt school who are social political philosophers person like Theodor Adorno, German philosopher, who actually really wanted to imagine the standpoint of the thing. You know, how might the world look from the standpoint of a thing? Yeah. And the reason for this was, in a way, to break down the, the sort of the hegemonic glance of the, of the human of the subject. Human that, yes, yes, that basically control with the mind and their thought and reason and what have you, everything else. So it's become much it more complex now. Uh, but there's a certain tendency. Latour is very famous for this. There's a very interesting book by uh, this philosopher, American philosopher Jane Bennett, the title of which is Vibrant Matter. I mean, she really is, goes into this discussion. And obviously, she doesn't say that something that we call inanimate in terms of physics is animate. But she is, in fact, you know, imagining in what sense material things exert forces in the world that may, in fact, change the way human beings do things. I mean, from, you know, it's yeah. a philosophical standpoint. Even in a very real way. Uh, right. And, you know, one may object to certain of the, her arguments. That's not the issue here. Yeah. There is something to that. And there's this tendency. And I'm, the way I understand this tendency is it's a kind of resistance against an anthropocentric hmm. control, which I'm yeah, all for. Yeah, this emancipatory tendency. Let's free uh, up things now. Right. But we've got to keep in mind the kind of irony here. Yes. That it is human beings that think that. They're the yes. ones who are, in some ways, thinking of ways to go against themselves. Therefore, uh, whatever <laughs> they, they say and do and think philosophically might it's be said to be... To begin with. Exactly. It might actually be just a with, continuation. To take up the and to, yeah. But yeah. I, I would sort of try to differ in an interesting way to show that you know, things do have a social life and science is getting more and more close to finding the social life out. Let's, but what do you mean? Mean? How do you mean social, social life? So, yeah, I, 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 I want to understand that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't mean like a collection of things which, which are here by accident. That is not society. Society is when, when you come together for, for some kind of common good, for some kind of, to serve some function, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you would define the society that way. So this is self-organization. Yeah. So now, for the first time, I think, at least in my career, I see some of my colleagues uh, sort of getting interested in a completely subjective argument as far as science goes. It is actually <laughs> anathema to us. We never, never talk of subjectivity at all. But in this case, when we talk of self-organization, one of my colleagues has been saying that, you know, you can have self-organization only if it is serving a function. For example, birds come together when, when they're flying in a formation, they come together to form the formation because it saves energy. It's uh, useful for them to fly that way. Similarly, uh, atoms come together, molecules come together, yeah, if you I leave mean, them for a long time, exactly. Uh, what we do so often is that we build up crystals uh, by taking a vapor of an atom and letting it fall on a flat plane. When the atoms fall fall on that flat plane and they are giving a, given a little bit of thermal energy to move about, they always arrange themselves in some kind of geometrical pattern which builds up ultimately to the lattice. Nobody yeah. tells them to do that. That is social behavior. Of course, you can always say that that is because they are not, yeah, they're minimizing not. energy or something like that. I mean, some some trivial explanation. But even <laughs> in a, in a, at, at a bigger scale, I mean, slightly bigger objects also often come together and form some kind of structure which has a function. 
And uh, these, these functions are what I would call a kind of social function. I mean, I can't give a very quick, uh, no, it's easy example. It's a very interesting notion. But I think, I think it is happening. And it's not happening in a trivial way like we are talking about now, but it's happening in a very deep way, which we are still understanding. We are maybe close to understanding it, but it is very interesting because this is exactly how life formed. It and was is because it happening of more in the virtual that, yeah, yeah. sort of world or is it happening? No, it's, no, it's no, also no, happening it's, it's in the physical world. world. Proteins are folding world. together yeah. and yeah. carbon so molecules. So when you're talking about molecules coming together, when, when for example, uh, body organs form, they form incredibly complex structures by just uh, self-assembling. Mm. And self-assembly to form complex structures is uh, quite well known. And it happens always because they are trying to gain something. They are trying to go into some particular direction. Like, for example, your kidney forms in a completely porous way. The molecules come together and form a very porous structure because it wants to sieve stuff out of that, out of the liquid that is passing through it. So this is, a, you know, in, in biology, it is very, very well known. But even in any yeah, objects... Yeah, I, I know yeah. of uh, the work of these two Chilean biologists, uh, Umberto Maturana and uh, Francisco Maturana. Varela, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, who Varela. wrote this That's book, right. uh, Autopoiesis and Cognition, mm-hmm. about a really, really a lamental right. uh, right. matter, yes, uh, yes. you know, self-organizing. And, and it is quite fascinating. They used in very interesting the phrase poesis, right? Auto-poesis, I mean, a certain, a certain yeah. kind of self-poetics because mm-hmm. autopoesis, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and a certain knowledge even that, that seems to be a really a knowledge in a way that is way, way beyond in the anthropocentric way of thinking of knowledge that exists yeah. in the physical structures, in the molecules themselves. Mm-hmm. But then where would you place the Gaia sort of notion of a self-regulatory structure of the world with some like love lock and all that? Uh, there is a self-regulatory about? structure that comes out of some kind of mechanism which is not known. You can call it uh, some kind of you know universal consciousness. We don't want to call it that. 